You're listening to the Green Majority Radio Program. We have an action-packed show to you uh, this week, including another filmmaker, which about uh, water, as well as some uh, some local climate activists talking about uh, some upcoming events, and of course, always the most important international and national news. You can support the Green Majority by becoming a member for as little as one dollar a month. You can help us improve our show and get the word out there more about what we do. The need for increasing amounts of independent journalism is becoming very apparent, and we cover some of the reasons for that on this week's show as well. You can do that at patreon.com. P a t r e com slash green majority. Enjoy the show. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your host, Aaron Kester. I'm sitting in studio today with, at the moment, just Stefan Hostetter. That is true. Uh, but maybe more later. Yes. More to come, perhaps. Yeah. Until I actually see them materialize, we'll leave it as a surprise guest. There we go. How about that? That sounds great. <laughs> that sounds fun. So we, uh, we maybe have a, an in-studio guest. We have, a, we have a phone guest. I'll just preview our special guest, uh, our special phone guest uh, at the very minimum. Uh, this week is going to be, we're going to be speaking to Mike Downey, who is a director uh, and a filmmaker and a, and a film writer uh, that's uh, worked on many Nature of Things uh, documentaries, uh, award-winning. Uh, we'll go through some of his accolades a little bit later, but uh, the preview for that I'll leave you with for now is that we're going to be covering his new film which is out very very soon uh it's called running on empty and i'm just going to read one sentence of their pre-written sort of script bio thing uh just because i i I really like writing like this so running on empty is the story of both a natural disaster and a man-made catastrophe californians aren't just up a creek without a paddle they're losing the creek too (laughs) i i love people who get paid to write stuff like that it's just man what a sweet job (laughs) anyway so we're going to be doing that a little bit later later in the show we're also going to be talking about uh we're going to be talking about canadian politics we got american politics and in a minute i'm actually going to do something which is i feel like stefan you last week you were talking about how there's like a new thing you're going to do like a like a regular bit you're going to try and do so i have a regular bit too now i'm going to be doing which is that right before the show i have this thing i've been doing it for a while but i'm now like doing it intentionally which is that i'm like 45 minutes to an hour before the show right when i'm sort of done my pre-show prep and i'm getting ready to actually leave the house i've been in this thing where you know i've just finished reading and reviewing all the news from the week and i get all you know full of vinegar uh and I send out a very provocatively phrased tweet. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm going to be doing to promote the show, about the show. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be intentionally keeping that up. There will be a very provocative tweet. And then I'll have a segment on the show where I justify that tweet to uh. say that, yes, the, you, that may have seemed a little extreme. You might have said, hey, you know, you're at a 10. You need to be at a 7. <laughs> and I'm going to justify the 10. That's my new Can thing. Can we call this tone it down? <laughs> tone it down. <laughs> tone uh, it down. Tone it down might be this segment. So today I'm going to be justifying this morning's tweet, which was to compare Trudeau's government, uh, Trudeau government's defense of pipelines to the RNC defense of trump mm. whoa wow but we'll get to that in a minute because first stefan you're gonna you're gonna start us off today yeah i have uh, i have i have what was also provocatively titled uh a, a on vox.com uh, that the biggest climate change story in the world this week is quietly playing out in rwanda uh which when i read i was like well tell me more uh, because you know that's all exactly as far as you know not exactly clickbait headlines, but sort of headlines that make me actually wonder like, all right, what's the biggest climate change story? And I really honestly thought this was going to be you know what's happening in say like North Carolina right now, which is you know a massive flood that's you know based that that's killed 
it, like, a combination of, of of the combination actually in, in, right now in North Carolina, uh, the the hurricane of hitting North Carolina that's devastated both residents there, but also the agriculture industry. Uh, millions of chickens have died, hundreds of thousands of pigs, in part because they're you know they're in these tight they're, they're in these tight confines that then got flooded. Uh, so the combination there between agriculture and and, and climate change and everything is, is interesting, uh, but it's not the biggest news story this week. Um, it is what is actually happening, and, and this is one of my pet. This is one of my pet issues, which is why I sort of you threw it at me for this one. Uh, that it is actually the a current UN talks in Rwanda, uh, which is specifically about uh, HFCs. Uh, so that's hydrofluorocarbons, um, and basically the, the hydrofluorocarbons. Uh, why they matter uh, is that they're extremely potent, potent greenhouse gas uh, contain capturers, or greenhouse gases, I guess actually is what you should say. Uh, so much so that they are 10,000 times, 10,000 times more effective uh, than, than, a, than a single molecule of CO2. So just incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, and What's in it? What's what's interesting? It's not actually just uh, it's not actually just hydrofluorocarbons. It's all it's all halocarbons. So it also includes what are normally CFCs, HFCs, uh, and even actually HCFCs. Uh, so just all except all three of those acronyms are just ha, are halocarbons for the duration of the segment because that's small. Lots of Fs, lots of Cs, lots of Hs. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, but what's important here is is it was, it was, it was, it was, what makes this sort of one of these classic uh, these classic sort of oh why must the world do this to us kind of things is that HFCs are the um, are we're, we're a part of the environmental environment movements one of b- our biggest victories perhaps our biggest victory uh, whenever anyone tries to whenever you, if you're going through environmental studies uh, as as a program in university as I did every single class points to the study of CFCs transferring to HFCs as the one time <laughs> that people came together and solved a global crisis well that and acid rain um, but well, the thing about HFCs and CFCs is that for you may have heard maybe 10-ish, 15-ish years ago, uh, that there was this large ongoing conversation about the depletion of the ozone layer. And that was like, that was the biggest fear. That like, you know, forget about global warming at the time. It was the ozone layer that everyone was talking about. It was the ozone layer. It was the ozone layer. We're destroying it. Help us. Oh, no. Um, And good news. uh, We fixed that problem. Uh, CFCs were destroying the ozone layer uh, in a way that I was still eating it away. It was still eating it away piece by piece by piece. And, the, the very short version is that, uh, and where, so where these come from is uh, coolants. Uh, so it's mildly ironic that what we now need to cool ourselves more and more and more as our planet heats up is also doing a very good job of actually creating that heating up. But you know, as we, uh, as it seems like the world is really into irony these days. I think that's I think that's what's happening. The world has decided to go for straight irony uh, as we slowly burn. But what's interesting here is that. So CFCs were, 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 were in coolants, uh, air conditioners, refrigerators, all stuff like that, and they were destroying the ozone layer. And a whole bunch of people came together and were like, all right, we need to do something about this. And, you know, the, the international community was doing what it does. It hems, it haws, it, doesn't, it moves slowly but doesn't get too much done. Uh, and then an American company comes along and patents HCFCs or HFCs, uh, which – are relatively similar to CFCs, uh, very similar when it turns out when it comes to, to comes to climate change, but they did not destroy the ozone layer. And suddenly America's interested. Suddenly America's like, wait, an American company gets to make millions and millions and millions, of, uh, probably billions of dollars on the patent for HFCs if we, if we ban CFCs to protect the ozone? Uh, 
Well, now the ozone is suddenly very important. We must defend the ozone layer. <laughs> Uh, and 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 so and 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 with that, the, the people met in Montreal, uh, in and 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 had what is still to this day one of the most successful protocols ever, the Montreal Protocol, uh, which got rid of CFCs uh, in in many in many places in the world. And so fast forward to now, uh, where we realize that HFCs, psych, also are serious problem because they're also ten thousand times more effective than carbon. And so now we have a new meeting in which in in in, in Rwanda talking about uh, trying to get rid of HFCs. And what's what's impressive, what's important to note here is that even the very like the amount, uh, the percentage of HFCs that exist in the atmosphere compared to the percentage that exist of of carbon is. Ridiculous, microscopic, but because they're so much more effective at trapping heat, eight percent of, of humanity's uh, global warming impact is from just HFCs and CFCs, and despite and so getting rid of them is reducing our, our impact by eight percent. Even in, in it's just a small, small piece. And let's remember, whenever we talk about, as a quick aside, whenever we talk about uh, carbon budgets. One of the reasons why it's important to understand that carbon budgets are imperfect is because it's called a carbon budget. It's not called a methane budget. It's not called a HFC or CFC budget. It's not called uh, an N2O budget uh, or any of these other warming gases that exist in the atmosphere. We aren't including any of those conversations in our carbon budget. Like now, the, 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 the wider, the wider you know, studies do. But when we're just talking straight, this is where we're at numbers sort of in a, in a, in a, in a you know, in a, we're talking to sort of a 450 parts per million leads to this amount kind of thing, uh, kind of level of warming. These are the sort of pieces that we're missing. And so when we say that we need to be conservative on our, on our carbon budget, that is because other warming agents exist. And they have different lifespans in the atmosphere. You know, methane actually leaves the atmosphere quite much quicker than carbon. But still, if our goal is to never hit two degrees, this is a serious problem. Uh, but with that, it looks like they actually will get into some sort of accord. Whether or not it will succeed is uh, is, is they've not actually signed it yet, to my knowledge. Uh, they are expecting one coming soon, though. Uh, and and so that's the sort of that's the fun story that actually exists uh, in uh, in here. It's that you know you're looking at uh, it's one of those things where like technology is great and can do great things, but sometimes just it, it's it's whenever we try to solve a problem with just trying the next thing, we're usually just kicking that problem down the road rather than actually solving it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's if there's one takeaway from this story, it is that. Uh, but I took up more time than I meant to, so sorry. Uh, that's okay. Well, actually, I wanted to give you just one more second because you mentioned a carbon budget there. I was wondering if you knew anywhere good spots to learn about what a carbon budget might be. Oh, is there something called greenmajority.ca? Just off the top of your head, I just, yeah. I think they I think this place called Green Majority did a video about what a carbon budget is, yeah. I think. A cool animated video on it. Yeah, and it's, it's great for children and adults of all ages <laughs> you can check out our website for that we made a little we made a little video in case you're a new listener we made a little animated video that was animated by stefan's brother uh very short it's like three minutes yeah uh, just about what a carbon budget is so you can yeah. check that out if you like uh so speaking of that and uh, my other sort of thing about that was that like that's sort you know as stefan as you were saying that's sort of like something that's that's brought up a lot and it's brought up in class like every class and the, the one thing they don't usually make a big deal about and i sort of i'm willing to cut them a little bit of slack on that in the like can't we just have this one shush yeah sort of thing is there's a really, I mean, nobody, you know, can say what alternate future, you know, would have been blah, blah, blah. But like, there's a really good chance that deal wouldn't have happened if there wasn't a way for, you know, American companies and the, you know, American companies to get filthy rich off the solution. There's a chance that deal never would have happened. And so I'm always a little bit eye rolly when someone says our big victory is like, well, 
Uh, but anyway, yeah. but we still get to live in a world that has an ozone. Yes, that's uh, true. <laughs> but and and that's and, and that's the thing. That's why and and then and to transition to my thing, that's actually yeah. a good transition uh, because you know the the solutions uh, can be very very easy when somebody can make a lot of money. The only problem is is who makes that money, and if the people making the money are not the same people that currently have money, the people that currently have money will. Lit- will kick and scream and, if necessary, drag the entire rest of the boat underwater <laughs> to make sure that someone else doesn't overshadow them. And this is not a new story. This is sort of the, the sign of the time. So we're going to transition really quickly now to me spending how much time? About I have seven minutes to justify the statement that Trudeau's yes. defense of pipelines is similar to the RNC's defense of Trump at this current juncture. All right. Damn. Go. Tone it down. Uh, so, <laughs> tone it down segment for this week. So, uh, uh, as reported on DSmog this week, BC's uh, pipeline uh, incident map has been quietly offline for over a month. That's the title of the article. Basically, what they're saying is the uh, the BC Oil and Gas Com- uh, Commission has uh, is charged with uh, 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 providing regulatory excellence over the Canada's future. All sorts of fluffy language that governments like to use to make themselves sound, sound great. Uh, but they, anyway, they publish an incident map, uh, which is a public accountability portal, which has been down for months uh, as well. So we also have uh, the current uh, the uh, despite the fact that the head of the NEB stepped down, we have a Quebec group this uh, this week also preparing to take it to court for despite the fact that he recused himself, the uh, the disgraced I will say uh, head of the National Energy Board has uh, still managed to um, uh, uh, basically um, redact large numbers of documents, uh, hiding just how deep the corruption that he stepped down. I think basically this is one of those things where like quickly, if I step down quickly enough, people won't look too much deeper because there's no reason for them to. So we're still waiting on all of the damage to come out about the corruption uh, at the uh, the National Energy Board. Meanwhile, we could say, well, that's just one board and you know, you know, that's an industry regulator that got captured. Okay, well, even if we put on our best faces and assume that Trudeau is uh, has the best intentions, which I'm not necessarily asserting that he doesn't, uh, I'm saying that he's playing the wrong game and that he's misinformed not that he's evil um uh but the trudeau government has been dangerously misled says robin uh, allen who has done a uh, uh who's an economist uh and has done a thorough investigation of some of the um uh, documents upon which natural resource minister jim carr was using to t- uh, investigate pipelines and develop policy and what it turns out was that there's uh, that staff appears to have been dangerously misled in these revealed documents about the economic benefits of the pipeline project. They were riddled with factual and analytical mistakes. So things that are that are that you you do need a little bit of background knowledge to to do. It's not like any reader would go and read these documents and see them. But people who have gone and done the research said that you know this information upon which you are basing public policy and the future of Canada uh, is is uh, easily refuted. It's it's based on bad info. Uh, so we have, you know, companies uh, in collusion with provincial governments hiding information or, or being okay with, you know, preventing uh, uh, at, at least not doing their best. I'm trying to cut them as much slack here, maybe un- unnecessarily or, or unjustifiably. Uh, but we'll just say that, you know, it's negligence that they're hiding this information from the public. Uh, they, the Trudeau government is being informed by dangerously uh, misled information that's easily refutable uh, with, by the you know people with the correct background and, and, and expertise to do this sort of review. Uh, the boards themselves, the regular Regulators are, you know, highly corrupt, and we're we're going to be learning more about how corrupt they are coming forward and forward. Meanwhile, while these uh, these uh, these incident maps are down, meanwhile in Alberta we have uh, Trilogy Oil Emulsion Spill, which is reaching the size of four football fields going on. Um, 
these websites that do show uh, the, all these leaks, uh, this is not a once-a-year thing. We don't report on every pipeline spill. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of spills all the time, several a month in many cases. Uh, meanwhile, we have also got – sorry, do you want to jump in? I was going to say, wouldn't it be good if there was a place to keep track yes, of all these only, spills? If, if only like, there yeah, was there a website. Like a website that – let us know. Well, you know, the government should really have to be told about these spills so that mm. they can provide – oh, somebody should write that down. Somebody should. Um, so meanwhile, you know, speaking of bad information, uh, uh, another independent review has gone through and shown that uh, uh, much of this bad information, for instance, was used to inform decisions like the massive site C dam, uh, which aside from – you know, we've covered that before. It's going to – it's it's there's a huge problem with appropriation of indigenous land, the uh, uh, – the, uh, the land is also in the the the, the destruction that's going to happen by the building of this dam is is also going to um, severely uh, uh, impact the people living in the area, just uh, including the First Nations people who uh, rely on this land for their uh, ability to live. Not just the land itself, but the resources, the fish, and, and all this, the ability to grow food, uh, is uh, also based on improper information. And that uh, with current uh, renewable energy prices, uh, that it would be 112 million dollars a year cheaper. To just build a bunch of solar panels. So, sorry, there goes that argument. Uh, you can check that out as well on DSmog. As well, any of this information, if you think, well, I'm just skimming through, you know, blah, 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 a bunch of stuff, go ahead, read it all. We post every article we look at on the website. You can go and read it for yourself. Uh, we also have now a, a, a diesel uh, spill uh, off the coast of the Great Bear Rainforest, also being reported on uh, this week as well. So here's where I'm going with that. How much time do I have? I have two minutes, so I'm going to wrap it up here. This is sort of – I'm laying out some evidence, and now I'm going to draw a narrative with it with the last two minutes. What's happening right now in the RNC is that uh, you know for months and months and months, the, the entire Republican Party has never been – This is there's a giant fissure right now happening in the, as the Republican Party in the US disintegrates. And But what you're happening though is that people saying that, OK, but if we, if we let the ship go down, we don't know – we don't have a backup plan. And we're, we're essentially ceding the next several – like this is going to be a wholesale sellout for our party. So we have to stick to our guns because we've already committed so much capital to this presidential candidate. It's you know all of our supporters are demanding this candidate even though we know he's flawed. We know he's a lunatic uh, and we know he has no experience. He's bad for the job. He's bad for the party. He's bad for everything. But we're, we feel like we're in this position where we don't have another option. We have to support it because we've committed. It's too late. They've, the RNC has passed the point of no return. Their opportunity to turn back uh, has long passed, and they're now supporting somebody they know is a terrible candidate that they know would be uh, not be advisable for, or recommended for anybody in the U.S. to have as president. Uh, even the RNC thinks so. Even the establishment – everybody thinks so. The only people that don't think so are the extremely uneducated and, frankly, outright racist uh, and misogynist, sexist, ignorant fools who are voting for him and those primary voters uh, who are still supporting Trump. What's the corollary? Okay. Well, here's my here's my position. This is what we've been going on for a few weeks now, is that the liberal government received a whole bunch of bad information, has been led by many of the same advisors that have been advising governments long time, which in many cases are the people from industry, and they have been convinced, or at least they were at one point convinced, that the only way forward was to use all the money from the oil sands to do things. They said, you can do whatever you want. Fine. You know, you want to push renewable energy. We'll, you know, argue about how that works. You know, do a carbon tax. Fine. We'll work with you as long as these pipelines get built. But it turns out all the information they based on it was wrong. Now, I'm going to cut Trudeau some slack. I'm going to say that there's a chance that he's figured this out. I think that the true thing is that he's pushing. He really does want a carbon tax. He really does want to meet the Paris climate goals. But he's been committed to defending these pipelines for so long now 
that he feels like it's past the point of no return where he's like, I know I shouldn't do this. I don't I, – I'm now starting to figure out that maybe this stuff doesn't make sense. But he's invested so much political capital in these projects that he feels – is my opinion. I'm just pure conjecture here. It's my opinion that he feels that he has no choice but to defend them to move forward or that he will, he will be seen uh, uh, as completely incompetent. Um, and so I, I, so the corollary that I'm drawing is the A, that he's supporting something he, he, I think at some level, probably knows he shouldn't, and B, that this was done on bad information. Uh, and that's me cutting him the slack. And the, fa- the reason I'm drawing the comparison with Trump is that despite this, he appears to be committed to these projects. He could, appears to be committed to pretending as if all these revelations about how badly informed and how all this misinformation isn't true in spite of evidence and that the net result will be negative for both him and the country. And that is the corollary I'm drawing with Trump. Let's draw it there. Uh, so we're going to stop now. This is uh, We're going to go to our first music break. We're actually going to come back and have a very, very different conversation. We're going <laughs> to talk about water when we come back with Mike Downey, who's the director of a new film called Running on Empty, which we're playing on The Nature of Things with David Suzuki, coming out very soon, later in October. Uh, we're going to go, however, now to Alex, uh, who is our tech this week, who's going to tell us what the music break is before we come back to that interview. Thanks, Darren. Uh, we're going to hear from a Toronto band. <laughs> All right, and we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT, listening live at CIUT, or you could be listening to the podcast. You might also be listening to us via our friends over at Rabble, which are hosting the show, as well as one of our very appreciated community radio partners internationally, as well as uh, – as well as obviously internationally, but also uh, well across Canada as well. Uh, we're going to move straight into our interview now, who we should uh, have uh, Mike Downey on the phone. Are you there, Mike? Yes, I am, Darren. Thank you so much for taking some time to uh, join us today. I had the pleasure of uh, actually walking, uh, watching the entire documentary this morning thanks to uh, the links you guys sent over. Okay. Uh, I'm very interested in this topic, and we don't spend a ton of time talking, uh, talking about it on the show. So I'm going to leave you as much time to inform our listeners as possible because I think this is super vital information. Just for background, however, you are an award-winning uh, documentary uh, producer. I, it would take the whole segment to read all your accreditation, so I, I'll, uh, I'll put a link up on the website. Uh, you've won Best Science Documentary uh, – uh, all sorts of uh, uh, prestigious awards, best direction, best this, best that. Great director. Yeah. It's a wonderful film. Uh, I want to get right into the topic that's really at hand, though, which is that the entire film is dealing with, uh, it's primarily centered around California, and it deals with the issue of drought. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'd like to ask you right here out of the gate, just to set up the problem, what sort of drought are we talking about? What is the problem? Well, the problem is there are five years into um, the current drought, and what it, I mean, and there's a there's a couple of sort of I wouldn't say well I guess it's weather related elements to it uh, that are a little bit technical. But suffice to say, what has happened over the last five years is their winters in California have been warmer than usual. So we know that that is certainly going to be a result of uh, influence of global warming, uh, and there may have been some El Nino effects as well, uh, but. What has been happening over these five years is that their snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas has been incredibly reduced. Um, the snowpack builds up over the winter, and it melts throughout the rest of the year. It actually melts a little bit in the winter as well. And so what that does is the snowpack feeds the streams, feeds the rivers, and basically provides all of the water that's used in California. It, this is typically in the north, but also... Uh, on the eastern uh, edge of the state, sort of as you move through the Central Valley, you also go into the Sierra Nevadas. They run pretty much the length of the state. So 
that reduced snowpack is having a massive impact. The reservoir levels are down, um, and you know the the level of consumption of water in the in the state, given that eighty percent of that is agricultural, it kind of remains the same. The, you know, the cities have done their part uh, in some instances uh, with a uh, you know a, a voluntary water reduction, um, but on the whole. The issue that they have is that their winters are warmer, and the the only way to really capture precipitation, the best way, is snow. Rain doesn't really come into play um, for filling up the reservoirs. Uh, it, it's very hard. Obviously, it's very hard to capture. Snow in the mountains is the perfect delivery system, uh, perfect storage system, and then the perfect delivery system. But problematically, of course, this hasn't been uh, happening. And as I outlined in the the film, this is having a a variety of effects. So one of the ones that really stood out for me was the fact that uh, uh, due to the lack of snowfall at the top of mountains, uh, the bears that normally feed on berries are coming down, and uh, this is resulting in obviously you know danger to residents, but also yeah. a whole bunch of dead bears. Yeah. No. Be the uh, less less um, um, less snowpack. Uh, Lower yields on the berries uh, and the nuts that the that would be sort of on the mountainside, uh, and the bears uh, have no choice but to keep coming down to lower and lower elevations. More human contact, uh, more bears getting hit by cars, trains. Um, yeah, it, it it really, you know, th- this was uh, that that was kind of a, I really liked that that little part of the film because it was. Um, we were staying, uh, we had had, I, I believe it was a couple of days of climbing, uh, in the, uh, which was an unbelievable experience of being up in the, in the giant sequoias. And, uh, we were heading back towards the Central Valley and, and I believe we were picking up our coffees and some food for a pretty good drive. And the local newspaper had this, you know, like a real nice local community newspaper had this headline story on the front page about, about um, this, what was happening with the black bears in that area. Uh, and so, you know, as Nick was driving out of there, he kind of retold the story. And it was like, wow, there you go. Like, here we are. We've done all this research. We're going, you know, how, the, how a documentary works. You've, you've talked to people. You're now there. You <clears throat> shoot your scenes and interview the people. And yet, where every way we turned, there was a doc, there was a, uh, there was a drought story, um, right. just by the fact that we were there. Right. Um, the other scene that was like that was, I don't know if you remember Lucian Neely, the fireman who has the, his story is that, uh, he, fireman in Tular County, which really was one of, is, is one of the hardest hit counties that had, uh, an unbelievable number of, uh, residents' wells, uh, go dry. They literally, people have, you know, uh, get their water from well water. And their wells simply dry up. There's no more coming out of out of their wells. So they uh, at the fire station, they had been providing um, water uh, for where residents could basically come and uh, they fill up their you know their gallon jugs or whatever they've got. Except while we were there, we bumped into this fireman in the lineup. Uh, <laughs> to get, we were getting sandwiches at this restaurant. He was in the line in front of us in uniform. We started talking, and he told us, "Yeah." This is our situation here, and as a matter of fact, we just ran out of water in our well uh, at the fire department, and we no longer have water at the yeah. fire department. 
And you're like, uh, we were. That's a pretty serious problem. Pretty serious problem. And, yeah. and so I, I was standing in line with our host, Nick Isles, and I, <laughs> we just sort of looked at each other. I'm like, Lucian, this is a, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. Is it possible for us to come by the fire station? And, you know, like you can show us around and tell us this story. And he's like, yeah, sure. Let me, you know, let me phone my, uh, let me phone my boss. <laughs> and we followed him. We've got our Subway sandwiches. We followed him back to the fire station. And like, as I said, you know, you couldn't help, but these stories kind of just happened everywhere. There's, I, I have other examples, but you get, right. you get my point. So it, one it of the, just everywhere. You, you mentioned there, uh, Nick, of course, that's Canadian scientist, uh, Nick, is it Isles? Isles, yeah. Yes, uh, who who essentially is the the uh, the lead on the in in the documentary, sort of showing yeah. everybody around, conducting on camera all the interviews, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, he's a sort of, of course a Canadian uh, scientist. So there, uh, just really quickly, I want to. There's a couple of sort of amusing personal stories as well, and then I'd like to talk about uh, from the point of view of sort of what individuals are doing about it, and then I'd like to, to spend our uh, maybe our remaining time uh, on uh, sort of what larger organizations are doing about it. So you talk to a few, uh, so like some mayors, and and a more sort of an institutional approach to dealing with this problem on a large scale but just really quickly before we get to that there was a couple there was two amusing things which uh, jumped out at me we covered actually both on the program as they happened as live news a while ago uh, one of them was uh, oh man and right the last minute I'm blanking on his name but that uh, the, the 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 Hollywood star who was uh, caught stealing water oh Tom Selleck Tom Selleck that's right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the comedian so you, the, the film opens with you following a, a local comedian around in California who's putting out posters saying you know this man's wanted for stealing water uh, yeah. which was to both of course you know promote his show but also because yeah. a lot of californians actually didn't know about that story which i found really amusing as a, as a canadian you know i caught that story um, yeah that's right and the other one which uh which i th- th- we also you know covered really briefly when we passed it was the whole thing about well now that they're under such tight water restrictions those who don't have the money to steal water uh, are painting their lawns which was another funny thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and of course my first question was of course what's in what's in the paint but it just sort of yeah. what's it goes to the extremity of the solution that you know it's the multifaceted and that's what I think is so important about talking about water is that you know like climate change you, there's not just one impact and there's not just one cause and one of the things like you said with the fire station is there's no water so that increases the likelihood of there being fire and it increases the need for water to fight the fires among other things mm-hmm. so the, it's right. these self-feeding feedback loops of problems mm-hmm. uh, but let's let's move on to Very the true. more uh, sort of big scale stuff tell us about you talked to some mayors and what some of the sort of townships and, and municipalities were doing well it was interesting in in carmel uh you know we went to talk uh to the mayor um and what they were wrestling with wrestling with is the idea of building a desalination plant because as it turned out where they'd been taking their water from the carmel river they actually didn't have water rights too. the the, the town had been sort of happily you know, sticking their straw in the river um, for all these years, and they, uh, through one way or another, figured out that actually we are not. Um, uh, you know, it, it, all, all the water right issues in California are extremely complex, but they didn't actually have the right to be drawing water from it. So they started to think. You know, I think they're, you know, they're okay for now, but long term, um, that puts them in a very precarious situation. So they're looking at desalination. Well, here's the thing. Desalination is expensive, expensive to build, expensive to run. They happen to be, it happens to be a very uh, wealthy neighborhood, uh, you know, as you can imagine, Carmel by the sea. And, you know, really uh, several of the, the coastal communities along there are very, very well healed. So that makes it possible to do. 
um, makes it, you know, uh, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be, it's going to hit people on their, their uh, property tax bills, but they could probably do it. The next question becomes, what about the environmental impact of, of putting these massive pipes out into the ocean that is all protected marine park uh, along uh, that part of the California coast. Much of the California coast is protected. And the environmental impact of drawing so much water and burning so much fuel, because it's very fuel, uh, it takes, uh, requires <coughs> a lot of fuel to, uh, you know, to uh, do the re- reverse osmosis uh, in uh, desalination. Um, but what about the impact uh, to uh, marine life and um, and just the, the entire ecology of the area? It, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful part of, of the state, and so I mean he was really left with um, you know this in- incredibly difficult situation where you know the the way out of it is there is no panacea there is no uh, way out of it that doesn't require you know, putting a you know a greater uh, having a greater carbon footprint, and and doing actually real uh, environmental and ecological damage. Um, mm. So, you know, in the end, I, I really I, I you know it'd be interesting. I don't know where they're at. I really did not get the impression that they were going to be able to go ahead with desalination. Right. Um, and you know, it, it that only works for residential use it, it, it's not a it, it it is so expensive it's not even close to being um a solution for agricultural use and and probably even for industrial manufacturing use uh, it it just it, you know the, the water's too expensive right so <clears throat> um you know california spends uh they've put a lot of um, you know they basically move water from the northern part of the state to the southern part of the state, which includes the Central Valley. They've got something there called the Delta. The Delta is their sponge. It, it is sort of, it goes east off San Francisco Bay, hmm. and it has several uh, rivers, um, I think the Joaquin River, um, uh, not the Colorado, uh, empties into it, So, and, and it, which are fed by the snowmelt from the Sierra Nevadas. But the Delta itself, um, has incredible uh, issues because they do suck a lot of. There's these. There's a state uh, water project and a federal water project. They both draw water out of the delta and ship it uphill to Southern California, Central California, Southern California. Right. And the problem they have is that they are drawing so much water out of the delta without it being replenished uh, the way it, it was pre-drought that there's a huge impact on the fish. Um, they are literally being pulled into the turbines like they reverse the flow, the natural flow of the delta. Um, and so these fish are literally being pulled through the delta towards these massive turbines, not funny, I guess, uh, and, and pumped uphill uh, so that they can fill these massive aqueducts and, and, and uh, send the water south. Um, but there's a big fight because, um, you know, this, this delta is most of it has been changed over the last hundred years because it has been this rich source of water, but there are limits as to how far they can go. And one of the, the limits is at a certain point by removing too much water, the seawater that's in San Francisco Bay starts to, uh, uh, you know, uh, it starts to enter the delta 
And you're basically looking at your, well, you're basically looking at salinated water hitting your fresh water, and then it's no good for anybody. Right. I mean, it's no good for the local farmers, which there are plenty of in the Delta area. They're kind of in a, uh, you know, a little club all to themselves. Um, and it's certainly no good to the farmers waiting for that water, uh, you know, down the aqueduct. So, you know, there's an environmentalist, uh, Peter Morales, we met there, who goes out and does his, you know, throws his fish traps out to, you know, basically do the, the fish um, sampling. And, of course, while we were there, there was the, <laughs> the nets came in empty every time. Right. Um, now, uh, there are fish in, in the Delta still. But his concern is that, you know, all of these things have a limit. And, um, and, and once you reach that limit, there's no turning back. You know, if, if, you, if this delta starts, uh, you know, to become brackish, if you've got salt water mixing with fresh water, um, you've got a big problem. This is water for all of San Francisco. Los Angeles gets water from the delta. So, you know, his thing is, well, they, they don't like the idea that because the Delta does empty into San Francisco Bay. So, well, that's a waste of fresh water. That should never be making it to the ocean. Well, the problem is, is that if you, if you draw down that water too much, well, then the flow reverses. And you've got, you've got salt water uh, creeping into the Delta. Um, that, that's a big, big problem. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, the problems there, like everything there is so big. The agricultural sector in the Central Valley, it, you have to drive through it to believe it. Yeah. Uh, I was glad that we had the drone uh, with us because you needed to get that drone and just take it. You know, you're in the middle of an almond uh, grove or a you know, citrus grove or um, uh, almond uh, ranch, and you need to send that drone straight up as high as it'll go because you'll never run out of orchard uh, crops on the horizon. Like, it, it, it's like being in the ocean. It, it's just, right. it, it fills, um, you drive through it for, for uh, hours and uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles. Well, it's Mike, unbelievable. Uh, un- unfortunately, we are uh, we are out of time, but I want to oh, well. I want to thank you very much uh, for uh, everything. We we got to a ton, and honestly, having watched the film, we didn't even get to half of the stuff in the film. So so don't well. think that listening to this interview has done you uh, any uh, service that that will replace actually watching it. Not to mention uh, that you know you get to all the food issues and lots of other stuff. Not to mention yep. just all the beautiful uh, videography there. So uh, right. congratulations on the film. I really do hope people check it out. Uh, again, we've been speaking with the d- director and uh, writer uh, Mike Downey, uh, along with uh, uh, David Wells. Uh, who is, isn't with us today, but it was also a big part of that project. Uh, just with our last few seconds here, can you just uh, make sure that people know across Canada how they can access this? When is it going to be on? When can they watch it? Yeah, it's on uh, October 20th on CBC's The Nature of Things at 8 o'clock. All right. Thank you so much so. for your time, uh, Mike, and congratulations on the film. Thank you very much, Darren. Okay. So again, that was uh, Mike Downey, director of Running on Empty. We'll have a link to that uh, information about that film uh, on the website. That is part of the nature of things with David Suzuki, who, who of course, always uh, sub-narrates all of the film, uh, all of the shows on there as well. So looking forward to that. Let's get right to our music break, though, because we want to come back. Our special guests have, have come into the studio, so we want to leave as much time as we can for them. So you're listening to The Green Majority. I'm sitting in the studio with Stefan Hostetter. We've got Alex Ricci in there in the tech board, and we're going to listen to one more music song, and we'll be back with this week's special guest, part two. Yeah. 
Young and we are back. We're back here live on the Green Majority CIUT 89.5 or on the podcast, which will have, of course, as usual, a bonus show. I have a couple of fun stories that we'll talk about. We might talk about Google. Uh, there was a really funny story about somebody having to uh, chase down 80,000 farmed salmon because a boat crashed into a far, uh, fishing farm, which I thought was funny. We yeah. also have some serious stories to get to as well. I was going to say there's a different story about uh, uh, some pigs uh, escaping and running through a small interior town. Oh, so that's also talk about, We just talk about weird animals on the land. We have uh, we have escaped animals as the theme of this week's bonus <laughs> show, it appears. I just want to make a really quick statement. So the reason we played that, in case you recognize the last name, yes, I, did, I didn't want to get into it in the interview because I didn't get his consent to talk about it. But uh, Mike Downey is, in fact, the brother of Gord Downey. Uh, and just as a uh, as another sort of uh, person with cancer in the life, personally, I just wanted to uh, to uh, to offer my condolences to, to, to him. I didn't, as I said, I didn't really want to get into a conversation about his brother, but that is why we just played a tragically hip song. So just wanted to acknowledge that. Stefan, you're going to lead us in our next section. Here. Yeah, so we are uh, we are privileged to uh, to be joined with uh, with two climate justice justice activists here in the city of Toronto, uh, Amanda Har- Amanda Harvey Sanchez, sorry, uh, and Atia Jafar. Uh, thank you for both joining us, by the way. Um, and uh, and so what I'll do is I'll, I'll do uh, we sort of want to we brought you in for a couple of reasons one because there's, there's uh, something going on, on October 24th which we pitched uh, last week and I want to get sort of an update about what's going on from you but from both of you but also to talk about sort of the state of where we sit in uh, in the justice uh, in the climate justice movement uh, because so it's uh, as as anyone who's been listening to the show for the last ten years uh, it's been an ongoing thing uh, and each year someone you know, I feel like we're we're slowly seeing a progression towards a more justice-based approach uh, of, of climate activism, uh, but then also just, you know, tactics are, 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 are changing all the time. Uh, and, and, and the ways that we're acting, uh, the ways that we're sort of uh, getting, you know, in front of these issues is changing all the time. Uh, and so we sort of get, uh, as people who are sort of actively in that scene, sort of get a sense from you, how, where, where, A, where we are now and where you sort of see us going. Uh, but to pre- top it all off, we have a, a one last news story for you to, for, before on this show, uh, which is that uh, a couple of earlier this week, actually, um, five activists, and this is actually interesting, all above the age of fifty. So uh, there was an intentional. That's funny you picked that up. That was actually going to be my comment as well, because as soon as I saw the headline here, which is uh, activists reportedly shut down five pipelines carrying tar sands oil into the U.S., I was thinking, oh no, that it was a bunch of young kids. And not that that actually matters, but just from an optics point of view, it being young people doing stuff like that, it just it makes it so much easier for people to dismiss. So when I saw the picture, I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, it's uh, like it, one, the, the one of the women uh, who was who's a grandmother. Not to be confused for necessarily officially endorsing what they did but i'm just right. really happy that if someone did it it wasn't a bunch of teenagers uh these these are these right. are adults age it was interesting right is the age does actually have it does, it shouldn't matter but it does exactly yeah it, it, it colors how people see sort of what what was happening mm-hmm. and part because everyone presumes that you get less uh, you get less uh you get you get more conservative as you age and so if there's these you know if there are grandmothers out there well then what then we must pay attention um, but anyway, so five activists uh, shut down uh, five different pipelines across the United States. The goal was actually to, to stop all tar sands oil from getting uh, from Alberta into the States. Uh, whether or not uh, – I, I actually don't know. I, they shut down five. I don't know if it's all of them, but they, they did pretty well. Perhaps you guys know, actually. I'll throw you in half a second. Um, and, and so this is yet another sort of piece of this ongoing uh, direct action against pipelines. 
Uh, and that is sort of – that's where we've been for quite some time uh, in, in the last couple of years. That's sort of the number one tactic we've used along with sort of these type protests. But the people – the justice-based lens that we've been seeing, uh, so through you guys now on this front, is that we've seen a move to some extent to this sort of you know, justice-first lens on, on climate action. Uh, and so, and then so, and what you're doing on the 24th, which I understand is is, some, is is climate 101. So if you can sort of explain what climate 101 is, uh, and then also how you sort of see us moving towards a, a justice-based lens. Uh, let's go with Amanda, so you don't have to look at each other and try to figure out who goes first. Go to Amanda first, <laughs> and then we'll get to Tia's thoughts. Uh, so Amanda, uh, where what's climate 101, and, and where are we headed? Thanks. Um, so climate 101 is very simply that we can't meet our climate commitments that we've made on an international stage and expand the tar sands. So it's climate 101 that we need to keep fossil fuels in the ground. And that means we need to reject the Kinder Morgan pipeline this December. Trudeau has a really important decision in December on Kinder Morgan. And young people are concerned that he might make the wrong decision. So we're going to Ottawa October 24th. Um, for a civil disobedience action to call on him to reject the Kinder Morgan pipeline and really teach him that most basic um, lesson of, of Climate 101, which is that climate leaders don't build pipelines. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned young people. Is this specifically, uh, is this part and part tap, tap, tapping on the fact that he is the youth minister? Uh, or is there, is there sort of a, a larger sort of you know, plan there because he chose that? Uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Actually, um, Trudeau named himself the youth minister, and it's the first time we've seen that in Canada. And it's an important role that he's given himself. And if he intends to live up to that role, he needs to listen to young people who are telling him that he can't keep building pipelines. And if, if he intends to do the right thing for our future... Um, he can't build pipelines that are expanding the tar sands. He can't build these pipelines that are um, contributing to the climate crisis that we will inherit as young people. So it is a very central part of uh, youth, youth issues that Trudeau is now making a decision on in December. Fascinating. So connecting youth to, uh, to environment. Um, so moving on to you, Atiyah, uh, specifically on this idea of uh, climate justice uh, and, and sh- shifting what was very much uh, for a very long time seen as a, as, a, as a very monochromatic movement, shall we say, uh, towards a more um, inclusive and diverse movement. Uh, how are you seeing that happen and uh, how is sort of where do you sort of see the future of this kind of climate activism going? Um, yeah, that's a very uh, good Good question. Um, so I guess a justice-based lens is really um, recognizing that in order to respond to the climate crisis, um, we need to not just transition away from fossil fuels and um, the things that are causing the climate crisis, but we need to also make sure that it is a justice-based transition. So in particular, ensuring that it is a justice-based transition for Indigenous peoples. And again, going back to the electoral promises that the Trudeau government has made, they made promises to Indigenous rights as well. Um, and this pipeline, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline, which Trudeau is making a decision on in December is actually vehemently opposed by uh, Indigenous peoples um, throughout Alberta and BC, but particularly on uh, the the BC coast by the Coast Salish First Nations. Um, and this action is very much in solidarity with the Slavitooth First Nation, which is um, based in the area where uh, the terminal point for the Kinder Morgan pipeline is on the west coast in BC. So um, very much in solidarity with um, with those th- those folks that are, are leading the fight. Um, and in fact, we will have young people from the Slavitooth community actually attending this action as well. Um, so very much it's about 
asking Trudeau to honor his promises when it comes to climate change, but also when it comes to indigenous rights, which is a key piece of that. And you can't talk about pipelines without talking about justice and climate change at the same time. So you said I mentioned the words terminal point. Just can I get you to explain sort of what that is and why that's important to the people who are right there? Yeah, totally. So uh, the Kinder Morgan Pipeline goes from the Alberta tar sands west um, towards the coast of British Columbia. So it goes south and then it like goes through Burnaby, B.C. and ends uh, right at the, the Burrard Inlet in like in Vancouver. Um, and so the Slavitooth First Nations uh, are are based in that area. And uh, the, the water there is severely at risk because the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline would significantly increase tanker traffic. Um, and we know that when tankers spill tar sands oil, uh, that's not something that gets cleaned up uh, easily. That's something that's going to permanently damage the ecosystem there, an ecosystem that communities have relied on uh, in that area since time, immo- time immemorial. Yeah. And so, and so the terminal specifically is, is, is where the oil ends up and then will be shipped onto, onto tankers and then and brought up. And then exported. Right. Yes. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so this, uh, so this, so it's it's next week. This action uh, in, in 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 Ottawa, correct? Uh, yes. So the action is in Ottawa. Um, it uh, will uh, start off as a march and a rally, uh, which we're welcoming everyone to uh, everyone, despite their age. Um, and then it will turn into uh, an escalated civil disobedience action where youth specifically call on uh, Trudeau to reject the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Um, so that will be the civil disobedi- disobedience component that follows the march and the rally at the beginning. Great. And how can uh, how can we find out more uh, about this? Or if anyone's interested, where can they find it? Uh, you can go to climate101.ca and read up about the action and about the Kinder Morgan pipeline and also find information about transportation because there will be a bus from Toronto the 23rd, Sunday, October 23rd, um, and a bus from Montreal too. And the Toronto bus will be stopping in Kingston. So wherever you're located, you can find information on how to get to this action. Yeah, and uh, just mentioning that uh, Amanda mentioned the bus is coming in on October 23rd, and October 23rd is actually a direct action training um, where folks will learn how they can prepare for certain scenarios that might play out during the action itself. Um, And that training will be really valuable for folks as they continue organizing when they come back to their local communities. And it's a chance to connect with other young people that are fighting for climate justice, particularly um, young people involved with divestment campaigns on campuses. So. We've, we've got about three minutes left and I'm going to, I'm going to do something which is sort of like one of my things that I do all the time, which is I'm going to make a statement that you guys should treat as a question. So I'm going to make a statement and then we'll get a minute response to that, which is that my irritation thing when people say, well, you know, youth movement and whatnot is I just, I wince and it's not because there's a reason to wince. It's because I know how such a giant portion of, uh, let's say, well, in this context, we can look at them as voters go, ah, youth, what do they know? Right. And there's this attitude that, you know, the, the, the old guard and that the, the establishment, uh, is like, well, well, yes, you know, I, when I was young, I had lots of fanciful ideas. And I'm just, I'm very cognizantly aware of how dismissive uh, the establishment is. And so it's not really, it's not a good argument as to why to do, it's not an argument for doing things that quote unquote youth are proposing, but it is an argument against that type of dismissal, which was, well, you know what, guys, you're the ones who set up this problem and you've yet to come up with a solution. So how about you just take a chance and try another idea, perchance the ones that's being proposed, and actually make this about what is being proposed and not about who's proposing it. And the only addition I would make to that was, uh, especially with all the pressure to put on proportional representation, Trudeau might want to be a little bit more concerned about what you have, youth have to say, because I think in Canada they're likely to play in a more and more important role in who gets elected in this country, regardless of who's right. By the way, it's us. Uh, <laughs> you have a minute or, or so if one of you wants to jump on that bandwagon. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like I think um, studies have shown uh, a lot of political analysts have concluded that that demographic, eighteen to thirty-four, the demographic of young people was actually very fundamental. I'm still young. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. You were in that demographic that was very a Trudeau majority, and uh, they wouldn't have won a majority if it hadn't been for an unprecedented youth turnout in the last election. Um, so, in order to actually honor that demographic, they need to actually listen to us, and we are the same demographic that is overwhelmingly calling for no, no more tar sands pipeline uh, pipelines and a just transition to a clean energy future. So I think we are very critical and we do have a lot of power over um, over the government that's elected and, and over holding them accountable after they're elected. So Trudeau, because I know you're listening, uh, your landslide mm-hmm. victory will turn into a landslide loss if you uh, don't get with the program a little bit more. I think that's it. So we're basically out of time, but we do have a bonus show. I'm really hoping that you will both join us for a few minutes after the show for our bonus show, which we'll be back. We have a couple of comedic stories, as Stefan was prompting. Uh, I also have a warning about why you should basically stop going to the Huffington Post. I like dropping these, ooh, what's that about bombs? Uh, that is, in fact, it. Uh, uh, we have like literally 60 seconds uh, for a final word, Stefan. Uh, my final word is that the Blue Jays are playing tonight. Go Jays, go! <laughs> All right. Every time Stefan mentioned baseball, please send a dollar to CIUT. <laughs> at, no. uh, all right, so, yeah, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, I also have, uh, yes, there's uh, some some uh, another thing I want to talk about in a minute. Again, we don't have time on the regular show, but I'm going to get to. And part of the reason why I uh, why I have a bit of a hate on for uh, Huffington Post this week is another article which will we'll start maybe the bonus show before we get to the fun stuff, which is the city of Vancouver votes to ban natural gas by 2050. Why does that lead to me saying stop reading the Huffington Post? Well, you'll find it in the bonus show, which you can find at greenmajority.ca. That is all the time we have for. Thank you so much for listening to the live show. Uh, I've been your host, Darren Kaster, with Stephen Hostetter in studio. Uh, go to Green Majority, greenmajority.ca, and we'll see you all real soon, like next week. Take care. Thank you for listening to the regular part of the program. You're now going to go into the bonus show of The Green Majority, where we have a, a couple of quick items uh, that we do mostly for fun. Uh, and then our guests uh, from the second half of the show stick around and we talk a little bit more about the impact that youth have on the political system in Canada, proportional representation, and all that sort of stuff as well, as well as just the issue of youth being taken seriously in politics. Please enjoy the bonus show. Quick reminder, as usual, that you can become a member and actually help support our show by going to patreon.com slash greenmajority. That's P-A-T-R com slash green majority. All right, we're back. We're in the bonus show now, the uh, extended format of the show, which is only available to our podcast listeners. We have, uh, I, I have a, a micro rant because I were just, there was just, you know, not enough time this week. Uh, then we're going to talk about something really funny. And then uh, just because Stefan thought it was funny, and I agree. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, youth and the youth and the interaction with sort of youth and youth being taken seriously, and the fact that I apparently technically still am youth, which I find very hard to believe. <laughs> uh, so just really quickly, so okay, so what was I saying about having to post? So Taxpayers Federation. Uh, let me see if I can pull out the actual name of them again here uh, specifically. So the, the, you should you should have your uh, any anyone listening to our show uh, make sure that if you aren't familiar with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the CTF, uh, or someone named Jordan. Bateman, who is a who is the BC director, but is very uh, is often cited. Uh, this is an astroturf group. Uh, there, who actually funds them is very very secretive. But there's been uh, uh, allegations. I don't know if they've been confirmed, so I will be careful about that because these are exactly the type of people that would like sue a volunteer radio host to get them to shut up. Um, that there's connections to oil and gas. There's definitely connections to post media. And uh, that's really relevant because the, today on Global News, one of you know many people that are part of the the 
uh, very establishment for empire media here in Canada, the very mono, uh, mono-voiced mainstream media here, uh, with an article with a very interesting story uh, called City of Vancouver Votes to Ban Natural Gas by 2050. Uh, it's an interesting story. This is, uh, uh, this is a, I think, a very forward-thinking uh, policy, one that as I should also mention that as uh, my, under my historical and, and current uh, employment as a chef, uh, a winced at because that old expression, now you're cooking with gas, uh, is a cooking one, and it's because gas is amazing for cooking. Uh, so I did briefly wince, but you know, in the, uh, that's my thing that I will sacrifice for climate change is cooking with <laughs> gas. Okay? I'll take electric. If I give that up, what will you give up? That's all I'm asking. Uh, but the point is here is that two sentences down, they're like, well, the plan is this is very far-reaching. I'm like, oh, good. You know, all, and then they start saying things when my my sort of like – my detector starts going off, which is restaurants, businesses, schools, and factories must all comply. Wait, where is this going? That will translate into some hefty bills for consumers. Oh, wait, I know where this is going. And now, quote, we're talking about a cost imposed on residential, industrial, commercial, and institutional users of natural gas on thousands and thousands of dollars. Josh Bageman, BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So this is yet another news story that's been co-opted by a bunch of people who have investments in very, very, very interest in not dealing with climate change, not transitioning away from fossil fuels because it might cost them a couple pennies out of their billions of dollars. Um, You should basically just ignore anything that they say, not because they're entirely wrong, but because it's going to be impossible to tell what's truth and fiction and what is uh, being phrased in a certain way. Like they're just, it's just unreliable. I'm I'm not asserting that everything that they say is a lie. I'm just asserting that everything they say is suspect. And that if the entire article is based on a comment by them, throw it away. The reason I told you not to look at the Huffington Post is when you Google Huffington Post uh, environment right now, they used to have an environment section. As far as I could find this morning, they don't appear to currently have an environment section. But if you go to the sort of the key, if you if you look for Huffington Post and the word environment, instead of pulling up an environment section and on the Huffington Post Canada, it pulls up a list of things with the word environment in it pinned to the top or what appeared to be pinned to the top was at least at the top. Yet another article by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, so, see ya, Huffington Post. You were going downhill for a while, and now you're completely gone. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Read them if you want to. Uh, they appear to have just sold out for ad money. Uh, which we're actually going to come back to, Stefan, because we have a sort of an ongoing piece now about independent journalism and why uh, people who aren't like them and uh, people like uh, Rabble and, of course, uh, National Observer and uh, Vancouver Observer, specifically Mike D'Souza, who's been doing a kick-ass job. If we had an award, he would be the winner of the Green Majority Journalist Award. Well, it's like the well the the, uh, the documentary earlier today won the Chris Award. He was right. the Darren Award. <laughs> it's, it was a random one of the accolades. It was the prestigious Chris Award. And I was like, man, that dude Chris is awesome. This guy's on award. Anyway. Uh, so there's that. Don't uh, don't take uh, anything at face value from the Canadian Taxpayers Association uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and I would be extremely suspect these days of anything on Huffington Post. We'll leave that where it lies. Uh, I I said that there was a story about uh, eighty thousand uh, fish being needing to be encouragingly hurry up and caught uh, because they were released by a ship crashing into a uh, offshore uh, salmon farm. It wasn't a salmon farm, but a fish farm. Uh, and Stefan, you retorted with. Uh, well, it's Burlington. I found the place. I went. Nice. I, I went in and I looked in, which I think makes it funnier. I think the fact that it happened in Burlington makes it funnier, uh, for unknown reasons. Uh, but yeah, no, yeah, some a bunch of pigs survived a uh, a truck crash, uh, and more than a hundred pigs were just sort of running rampant through Burlington, uh, and and that's the whole story. The, the, well, the rest of the story is then they got caught and sent to the you know uh, to slaughterhouse. So. Although weirdly enough, some of the pigs died in the car crash, and I don't know. I, I guess that's like that's like a, a weird. Uh, again, I said the world was into irony, and I think pigs dying to, on their way to the slaughterhouse 
in a car crash uh, is mildly ironic. Although, to, mean, to, no irony wrong. To, to throw a bone to our vegan friends, the car crash was probably still more humane than what they would have happened to them if they'd ended up at the factory. That is fair. So maybe maybe these are lucky pigs? Oof. Let's not go there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to the other thing uh, because it's actually substantive rather than this thing, uh, which is this conversation that you began, Darren, on the, on the, on the actual show, which is about the, f- the fact that youth aren't listened to uh, yeah. or, or aren't taken seriously. And uh, we haven't had my friend uh, uh, Liam O'Doherty, who, who works with a lot of international organizations on in quite some time. He's been out of the country a lot, just haven't been able to connect to him. But that's something I always present to him because he, he essentially works with groups all across the world, uh, youth groups, to, to get them to to interact with politics and to get them more involved. And my question to always uh, to him is, yes, but does anybody listen? And so now I put that uh, skepticism to our this week's guest. Uh, is is this a pie in the sky? Do you do you, do you feel, or, or did the fact that the youth played such an important role in electing the current landslide liberal government, uh, do you feel like youth actually have the power they want to have, um, or is this a pipe dream that that politicians are going to listen to youth? What do you guys think? Um, yeah, I definitely feel like the frustration that youth aren't taking seriously. Um, I think especially in politics, there's this like assumption that we're not engaged with politics. But I think a lot of young people actually are engaged with politics. The problem is we're not happy with politics as usual right now. And I think when there's frustration, it can be easy to like disengage from like the status quo um, side of politics, but there are a lot of people who are a lot of young people who are advocating for a different kind of politics, whether that be uh, changing the voting system or asking for more ambitious climate action or for real uh, reconciliation with indigenous people and not just lip service um, that you see on the campaign trail. Um, so I think a lot of young people are getting to the point where that frustration is building up and they're ready to take more escalated action now. So with the action that um, Atia and I are working on that would be one example with Climate 101 that um, a lot of young people are ready to move to civil disobedience now because we're not happy with politics as usual and uh, we've tried playing nice and we've seen that that didn't work so we're ready to do something bigger Atia? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, um, especially with this government, like it, it seems as though that they want to say that they value youth and they value um, the things that we have to say. But I think in, in actuality, what they really value is like using us as props. So, you know, like Justin Trudeau loves to take selfies with young people. Um, he likes to show that he's in touch with millennials. But when it comes to us actually raising our voices and calling for uh, the government to do things as simple as understanding and respecting the science of climate change, they no longer want to listen. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really interesting. Like recently, we've seen uh, Justin Trudeau just confronted on Kinder Morgan everywhere. Um, he was in Mont- Montreal, or um, he was in a in New York City recently, and this student from Montreal who was studying in New York um, approached him and asked him if he would reject the Kinder Morgan pipeline. And you can see him approaching her really happily, ready to take a picture with her. And then as soon as she asks him about Kinder Morgan, he can't get away fast enough. And just last Friday. When he was in Toronto, Amanda was actually there on Bay Street asking him the same question. And he was, again, just not responding, walking away. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. There's all of these uh, critiques about millennials being apathetic. um, But when you actually look at 
case after case, we are very political. We do have a voice, and we are asserting that voice. But uh, but as soon as as it's actually calling for real change and calling for different kinds of politics, it's no longer considered to be as valuable. And uh, so part of the Climate 101 action is really asserting our voice in a different way um, because the the mainstream channels, the channels that we have been using so far, have not been working. We've been showing up to climate town halls. We've been writing op-eds. We've been confronting the prime minister in various places when he comes to our communities. Um, that voice hasn't been heard in those in those areas. Um, so we're using civil disobedience as a platform to really um, make ourselves heard. Yeah. yeah, and my I mean my analysis has always been that you know they, when people say that you know oh youth aren't informed or whatever they just have these crazy ideas but they don't understand you know the, the, how the real world works is that no I mean my analysis and this is based on just my experience but that you know most older people show who show up and vote uh, show up and vote because you know they vote liberal or they vote NDP or they vote conservative because they always have and it's pure tribalism and they and they don't actually read the platforms they don't, they aren't actually informed on the issues they just think they are and that their team is the best team. You Youth actually do read the platforms, and that's why they don't show up to vote consistently, because they actually do read the platforms, and they don't see anything that that they like, and that it's actually the complete opposite. So it's not even that, oh, well, yes, youth are just as formed. I would say, on average, youth are considerably more informed uh, than the people who tend to show up. It's because they never see anything that makes any sense or that represents them in any way to be like, why should I? Because this is all garbage. Am Am I being too cynical, Alex? No, that's definitely how I felt the first few times I had to vote in elections. And and I would vote for Green Party and talk about it with my parents and they'd be like, well, maybe Green Party have interesting policies, but they're never going to win. So what's the point? Like, why would you why would you waste your time with that? And that sort of would make me cynical about about going to vote as well. Uh, and then and then like in this past election, I him guilty of voting for the liberal party but but that was because it was like a lesser of two evils situation that really uh that really like seemed uh pertinent at the time and and i yeah i i i think it'll be really interesting to see how uh your civil disobedience action plays out because i haven't heard of a whole lot of um like direct and like very organized youth action uh with uh facing our the new government um, and so I'm curious to see if maybe with a little bit more force, uh, the the Trudeau government starts to pay attention. And I think I can I can I can combine these uh, a couple different threads here that were starting there with with with, it, with with something which is just I think hilarious, uh, which is so we're looking at like what's interesting about the sort of the idea of tribalism and, and, and the fact that you know if Trump has proved one thing it's that 35% of, of America and almost the entire GOP establishment is willing to just say yes to something that is out of this world like the, 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 uh, just just because it's because their branding is on it basically yeah. not not even that something is just out of this world but something that they in the sentence preceding and afterwards said was probably not the best idea well and not only that like, <laughs> not only, like is putting forward policies that are a hundred percent against everything they've fought for these are people who have spent their entire lives fighting for free trade and are now being like no yeah it's this guy like if like I, I, I anyways point is that there's a uh, and, and Justin Trudeau has been good at one thing it's it's being able to speak in a way that uh, that, that it sounds as if he's going to do stuff uh, without actually doing it and so someone has has come out and wrote a very short uh, speech uh, called Justin Trump Dump uh, which is Justin Trudeau if he spoke like Donald Trump <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and I just want to read Why one... Why have I not heard of this? I just want to read one paragraph from it, uh, which, is, which is this. Uh, I'm not going to try to do a Donald Trump impression. Uh, the reason we're not backing out of the Saudi's, Saudi arms deal is, well, first, let me say, I consult on these things with my cabinet, which, by the way, is incredibly diverse cabinet. Incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. You've never seen a more diverse cabinet in your life. Have you seen the number of women in my cabinet? Huge amount of women. Tons Be- of women. Beautiful, beautiful women. 50% of my cabinet is women. No one has ever done that before. Tremendous. People, people ask me all the time, Justin, why do you have so many women in your cabinet? They do. They ask me that. And I tell them, you know, because it's 2015. I know how to hire people. I used to be a, I used to be a camp counselor. Very, very successful camp counselor. Very successful. Made a lot of money. Transformed thousands of children's lives. It's true. And Stefan is holding his hands up as he says, you, all uh, this. "I can't. You can't not. You yeah. can't not." A, a lot. Listen, listen. A lot of people said you couldn't lose money on a casino. I proved them wrong. Tremendous. <laughs> but that's it, right? It's 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 one of those things where you know people can be good at speaking or not good at speaking, but that doesn't change what actually is the case of whether or not they're going to do the things they say they're going to do or not. Yeah, I think I, I often wonder, uh, you know, what would happen to our political discourse if all of the leaders actually could only uh, communicate through like those like uh, like computer voice things. <laughs> so we did a debate and they all had to like stand behind the screen. So it's not like we know who they were. But during the debate, they'd all have to stand besides uh, behind screens that just had like gender neutral person outlines uh, and maybe a li- or maybe a silhouette or something like that. Uh, and then any statement they want to do, they had to type in and would be read out by a monotone computer voice. Because I think under such circumstances, uh, we would have an incredibly different opinion of, of the types of positions. It would, it would reveal a lot of hideousness that gets hidden in flowery language uh, and, and charisma. And it would also hide a lot of bullshit. It would also reveal a lot of bullshit when people are like, well, that's obviously not true. Like when you read stuff, it's different. Like I've heard Trudeau say stuff and I've been like, okay, well, I'm not sure how I feel about that. And then I've gone to reference it and I've looked it up and I've read it in print. I've been like, what the hell? This is nonsense, <laughs> right? And even, and like, I, you know, I pride myself on being an extremely skeptical reader. That's kind of the whole point of the show is that we read news and we help try and help people digest it by, by skimming through that stuff. And even I'm not immune to it, right? It's crazy. So we've got, we're about 15 minutes and we've got five minutes uh, left. Um, did you guys want to chime in a little bit more about that topic? Anything else? Uh, we could tell some jokes. What do you yeah, want to do? do talk about pigs for five minutes to go over it. Yeah. Uh, perhaps in lieu of anything else, you can give us your uh, your thoughts on whether or not you think the liberal government will actually hold to its uh, proportional representation. Because if it does, that I mean, that's the entire political landscape in Canada changing. Uh, uh, you know, we, we're we're all skeptical about his climate change stuff. Do you think he'll at least hold to the to that promise? I don't know, Amanda. Do you have thoughts on that? I don't actually. I don't know at this point whether he will. I think it's going to depend on the pressure. I, I think um, left to their own devices, um, they, they might, they'll change it from first to the post, but I don't know if the alternative is going to be the best alternative. But I know there are a lot of uh, really talented people uh, with Lead Now and with other great organizations that are working to push for um, a truly proportional um, system of voting. And I think if we get that, that will definitely totally change the political landscape. I know, I mean, you were mentioning, Alex, earlier about how you voted liberal strategically. Um, and I think a lot of people were in a position that they've had to vote liberal uh, for strategic reasons if they were in a swing riding to get rid of the Harper conservatives. Um, but that's not really where their heart is. And once we have a, a system that allows people to actually vote for what they want for, um, it's going to totally change the political, political landscape. Parties will actually have to listen to what uh, people are asking for and, and act on it. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that I think some change will happen. I just I'm, I'm not certain that the change will be a great change. But I, I, I think that if nothing else, these uh, the recent polling uh, that was done by the NDP, the, the you know nearly 40,000 people polled showing over 80 percent of Canadians uh, support uh, a change from the current system, uh, if nothing else will allow the NDP to use it. Uh, that combined with Trudeau's promise to do so, uh, I don't think he's got a lot of wiggle room to get out of it. And I think the concern now should be is, do, are we going to get a good system? Not, is it going to change? I think it's 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 near certain uh, that we will get some change. Uh, what change that is and what that does to the political landscape, I think, is the real real question at this point. Um, do you want to say anything about that too, Atiyah? Um No, I think that captures that. No? Yeah. 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 I think uh, I think we're we're all spent here. Uh, I was going to go back to the salmon story, but I think one of those cases where, along with the pig story, reading the headline, I think pretty much said it all. So, oh yeah, there's, there's nothing left in that pig story. <laughs> we can milk that for 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 no more time. All right, so let's uh, let's cut it there. We'll, we're going to give our listeners a break and be under 20 minutes on the bonus show for once. So let's call it there. Thank you very much to all of our guests, to Stefan as well for all his help this week, uh, to the producer uh, Mike Downey as well, and Alex uh, for being in the tech room, and uh, thank you for listening. Thanks so much. Take care, guys.